Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey everybody, welcome to the very last episode of Not So Linear Season 2. Today I have an extremely educational and informative conversation with Joshua Fletcher, otherwise known as Anxiety Josh, on Instagram. He is a psychotherapist who specialises in anxiety disorders, and having previously struggled with several diagnoses of anxiety in the past, he now commits his career to providing psychoeducation and spreading awareness about the topic. He's someone I followed for a while. I find him extremely helpful, not just because he's got this scientific background and the profession, but because he's been through it himself so he can really relate and he knows exactly how you feel. And his Instagram page has built a fantastic community of people, so I highly recommend you go and follow. He's also a best-selling author of two anxiety self-help books, as well as hosting the Panic Pod podcast. Josh also was very open and honest about his experience of grief. He lost his brother, who was a teenager, to cancer, and that was pretty much the catalyst for his anxiety later on in life, because he didn't process the feelings, and so many of us know that all too well. So thanks to Josh for being honest and talking us through what it was like back then and how he now brings his brother into his life through seeing his clients, helping his clients and pretty much being able to try and find ways to connect with him. So let's have a listen to what Josh has to say. I asked a whole range of different topics that you guys raised to me over Instagram from how does alcohol impact anxiety? What do we do in terms of coping mechanisms which Josh had an amazing response to he actually said he doesn't like giving advice about how we cope because we do have it within ourselves to do so if we look and search for coping mechanisms we're negatively telling ourselves that we cannot cope as we are already we have to learn how to retrain our brain and break out of the habits of anxiety and ruminating thoughts Josh, thank you so much for joining today. I followed you for a long time, so it's really nice to finally get to meet you. Thanks for having me on, Tams, and I'm looking forward to chatting to you. It's been um, an interesting year and a half, and you know, following your posts and reading your book has been so helpful. And I think, like for many of my listeners, hopefully they will know who you are already. But for ones that don't, it'd be really great if you could give a bit of an intro into who you are and what you do. Yeah, sure. So my name's Joshua Fletcher. I go by the social media tag Anxiety Josh. Um, I'm a psychotherapist based in Manchester in the UK, and I specialize in anxiety and anxiety disorders and all sorts of kind of anxious presentations. And I write books and do podcasts and social media stuff and the like. And uh, yeah, I'm really passionate about doing it. And was that born out of your own experiences? So something that's been played a massive role in your life growing up? Yeah, well, it, I've always kind of been a bit of a worrier. Most people with ex- excessive anxiety or anxiety disorders are a bit of a worrier. But I, the anxiety became very excessive when I was about 20, 
22, 23, to the point where I had, you know, what's colloquially known as a nervous breakdown. Um, and that's when I had an enormous panic attack one day. I didn't even know what was going on. It scared me so much that I kind of withdrew, started experiencing all these strange symptoms uh, and thoughts, felt detached from reality, I felt very scared, I didn't know what was happening to me. Um, and that was the start of kind of agoraphobia and, and anxiety. And yeah, at the time there was a lot going on and I dedicated my time to try and kind of work out what was going on, happening to me, learn about it. And yeah, ever since then I, I developed a, a real interest in anxiety disorders because obviously I'm doing all right, otherwise I wouldn't be here. Um, yeah. But yeah, so much so that I wanted to study to be a therapist and help others. So you actually started to train as a psychotherapist after you'd experienced that, so in your mid-20s? Yeah, absolutely. I was a teacher beforehand uh, and a behaviour support worker for disaffected children, so you know, children with emotional and behavioural difficulties. And that kind of sparked my interest in psychology as well, and then it was, yeah, it all came together in the end. That's what, that's, it was there when I experienced the breakdown, not just because of that job. I really I loved that job. It was amazing, but... Um, just various things happening and then yeah my mind and body decided you know enough's enough today and, and warm me with a this isn't sustainable and warm me with a giant panic attack yeah it's really interesting when I interview people like you because so many people use their experiences to then go on and help others do you feel like it, it was learning and seeing how it impacted you was just so like kind of your path to getting out of it by helping others and, and working through it with them. Uh, yeah, absolutely. It was, but it's more, it was a passion to do that. You know, there's a part of me that's like, I know I wish there was a me around when I was at my lowest to help me, but also I do it because I don't want like another person to go through an anxiety disorder without it being kind of explained to them. Um, I went to my doctor, I saw counsellors and things like that, and no one quite understood the nature of an anxiety disorder. Now, you know it's an anxiety disorder when you're fearing fear itself, you're inwards, you're ruminating, There's, you're not necessarily worrying about external things like your relationship or your job or anything like that. I mean, you are as an additional worry, but it's mostly like, am I okay? I'm worried about the state of my own mental health. I'm worried about what all these strange what-ifs are, these symptoms these feelings of fear and doom and, and it becomes constant and very debilitating where you can't eat, you can't sleep. Psychoeducation was so important for me to overcome that and I just aim to be that person now, even on social media and stuff like that, just providing educational content for people to feel less alone and more empowered. When I look at your social media and it, it helps me because I see so many people commenting. So not only is it looking at your posts and what you talk about on your stories, but the community that you've gone on to build, it shows that by seeing others going through it, it really does make a difference. So thank you for building such a great community as well. Oh, thank you. Yeah, no, I've never really thought of it like that, I suppose. Yeah, seeing other people going through similar things is, makes you feel less isolated remember when we chatted a few weeks back one of the things that really interested me was when you said that talking about grief it's such a personal and difficult thing that you go through in life but for you going and doing this episode was almost like a self-development and, and a way for you to maybe even process some of your feelings even more and to hear someone who works in therapy say that kind of thing 
I think is amazing and so honest. And it goes to show that there are always still things in life that we're still unpackaging and processing. And I wondered if you were open to us discussing a bit about your experience of grief and how that's impacted you. Yeah, sure. Um, I still go to personal therapy every few weeks, um, just because one, because of the nature of my job, but two, because lots of things have happened to me. And I think it's uh, sensible to do that. I like to talk about it as well through the, I use a metaphor with my clients that I apply to myself too. And it's that when you get excessive disordered anxiety, it's a result of accumulated stress. Some of that stress is very in the here and now. And some of it is the stuff that we've carried for a long time. Uh, and I use the kind of the, the analogy of a jug, which is we all have a stress jug uh, and we pour stress into it and it absorbs it. The size of that jug depends on genetics. So you know, if you've got a parents that worry and faff or, you know, have, have mental health issues, then your jug will be smaller. Um, but it still doesn't mean that you'll, have, you know, lead to anxiety disorders and things like that. And big part of what fills up the jug for many people is grief. And it certainly did with me. And that's why I think it was a contributing factor to my anxiety disorder because it was filling up a lot of that jug. So I just invite people to kind of conceptualize that as if, if you are grieving yourself, just to understand the nature of how much grief can contribute to excessive anxiety as well. Do you feel that it's a very common trait that you come across from people when they've lost someone or something that grief just starts to exacerbate anxiety because we've kind of become so out of control. We feel like we we're unable to control what's happened. So we start worrying about things more in the future. Um, yeah, absolutely. And, and again, use, using the jug analogies that when that jug overflows, that's when we start experiencing that excessive crippling anxiety. What I aim to do as a therapist is to pour some of that stress out. Now, you're never going to pour all of your grief out of the jug because uh, to some extent it'll always stay there because of how powerful it can be. But you can minimize it by talking about it, by processing it. But you're right, you know, if, you, if you're 18 years old, formative age, you've already got a lot of worries about who you are, what you want to be, excitement about the future and all that it would make sense to be like, okay, I want to park this grief now because, I mean, I've just officially come and become an adult, really. Um, but then you start to, life with a jug that's half full and, yeah, that'll start to kind of weigh you down a little bit as, as you're experiencing all these things. Because I don't know about you, but when I was 18 and stuff like that, I found loads of things stressful. And, I was yeah. literally just going off to Manchester University. I was ready to have a fun time. And I, it was almost like there were so many distractions that I never really had the time to think about what just happened. I was already just so bombarded by life changing so much. Yeah. Yeah. And I can, I can see why that would, matter, that would happen, but it just... It doesn't just go away and some people just process it when they're ready. What do you find are good coping mechanisms when you talk to your clients or even yourself? When you find that people are struggling with dealing with their grief, what are ways that people can start to think about it and process it themselves whilst also managing their anxieties? It's very scary, yeah, but, but I also tell people that it's okay, you're not going to become overwhelmed. I don't really use the term coping mechanisms because I find it that in itself is minimization of experiences and sensations and feelings. But in my practice, it's like, well, just let it hit you. Let the anxiety and the grief hit you. See what happens. 
nothing's not going to hurt you. It's just going to feel you just don't want to experience it. And, and to an extent, it's probably why we go around trying to get on with life because we don't want to experience it. Whereas it's actually really healthy to experience it. Let it hit you like a wave, you know, and you always feel good after it, you know, no matter how sad something is. And if you don't want to hit, let you, you know, let it hit you like a wave, then, you know, you, I always use my analogy. You can tell I used to work in a school, but use the analogy of if you've got a bottle of fizzy pop or you know, soda water or whatever it is, you know, you when you shake it and shake it and shake it, you can either open the bottle and let it all out <clears throat> or you can just open it slowly and let a bit out at a time. It doesn't matter. It's interesting the way that you talk about the coping mechanisms because is it that you're saying that when people think of it as a process like that and that we have to have these coping mechanisms and we have to know ways to fix it, that we almost obsessively think about our anxiety too much? Is that what you mean? Yeah, but just think about even when you say coping mechanisms, it insinuates that you have an internal belief that you can't cope with something. Why would I need a coping mechanism if I can't cope with it? Don't get me wrong, there'll be some people with needs that need coping mechanisms. I, I apply them whether, you know, whether it's, you know, if it's working with someone with really kind of profound trauma and depression, I would, <clears throat> like PTSD trauma, not the, the word trauma that's been thrown around all the time. But like when you've got a PTSD and depression, it's, yeah, you use like grounding techniques or, or something like that for that. But for general grief, Yes, it's horrible. But what doesn't help is when you kind of subscribe to this narrative that, oh, my client or this person can't cope. Mm. Yes, they can. And they will cope. And it's really empowering to learn that when all that pain comes in, with all those memories, with all that anxiety, and you can still cope, that's part of the healing process. Rather than trying to dampen it, do what I did and start drinking and doing loads of drugs, you can know, you can you, you can let it hit you and that's okay. You can cope. Part of the reason that you struggle with anxiety and grief is that there's an internal belief that you can't cope. So, yeah, no coping mechanisms from me. <laughs> I've never thought of it like that. Yeah, I get all the time with anxiety. Any tips, any coping techniques for anxiety? No, none. Because as soon as you say you need a coping technique for anxiety, you're teaching the brain that you can't cope with anxiety. What's wrong if you don't do coping techniques? I might feel a lot of anxiety. Well, good, because that means you'll overcome your fear of it. Yeah, I like that. So it's a much more positive way to think about it. One of the things that I personally struggle with, and a lot of the people who follow me on my Instagram page has said that they wanted me to ask you about this. And it's this whole idea of things going wrong. And especially with the world we live in now, there is still so much uncertainty, even though lockdowns have ended and, you know, life is back to somewhat normal. How can we learn to sit with uncertainty? How can we be more at peace and feel more calm around that? Um, there's always been uncertainty. And I think that's really important. Um, you've always lived with uncertainty. And statistically, probability-wise, the same that... that even after a pandemic, there's always been um, uncertainty. What helps is that realizing that you can cope. A lot of people struggle with uncertainty because they possess an internal belief that if things get too much, I can't cope. And that's what I teach against. It's like, no, you, you've coped with everything that's ever thrown, life's ever thrown at you. What makes you think you're just not going to cope now? I mean, talking about grief, you know, you if, if you've lost your mother and at a young age, 
you know, and you're still here now, stronger than ever, what suggests that you can't cope? You know, I've lost family members myself, tragically. Okay, it made me quite unwell, but I still coped. I'm still here. Sitting with uncertainty is doing what non-anxious you would do. My two magic rules, two magic rules are, what would non-anxious you be doing right now? Well, actually, non-anxious me might be out to see my friends or whatever. Or non-anxious me might actually choose to just sit and grieve for a bit. That's okay. I'd do that. Um, as opposed to sitting there ruminating about what ifs all the time. That's, that's That doesn't help anyone. And my second golden rule is, is what I'm doing right now teaching my anxious brain that uncertainty is okay? Well, if you're sitting there, Google scrolling, doom scrolling, constantly asking for empty reassurance, then no, you're going to end up stuck in that cycle. It's an ongoing constant practice with uncertainty. You'll never hit a utopia where you're completely okay with uncertainty. That's a paradox. But you just it's an ongoing practice, and the more you do it, the less scared of uncertainty you become. I don't like uncertainty either, but it's I've practiced with it enough for it not to affect my life. It's, I guess it's about looking at yourself, like you just said, if I was being anxious right now, well, what would non-anxious me be doing? And I'd actually be in the exact same spot. Nothing, I can't physically change a lot of the things that are happening around me. So in a way, it's about just letting them happen and telling yourself, look, I've dealt with so many things before. There's nothing else that I won't be able to manage. Mm, that's a good thing to say to yourself, yeah. I do have a strong belief, though, about when you ask about what non-anxious you're doing right now, Try not to see yourself from, you know, the third person, like you're playing The Sims or something. <laughs> we could both be in the same room, sat next to each other on the same sofa. But non-anxious me would be watching TV and anxious me would be not concentrating on the TV and be inwards and ruminating constantly. Rumination, rumination. And rumination is a behavior. It's not you reflecting. It's not you being philosophical. It's not you processing. Rumination is when you, you know you're ruminating when you're on the hamster wheel of thinking, just going round and round and round and round and round, achieving no answers. Um, so, in a sense, I mean, I, I do. I'm big on this when I work with anxieties. I always ask, "Where's your attention right now?" Yes, we're both doing the same thing. Yes, we're both at the pub. Yes, we're both at the restaurant. Where's your attention? Well, mine's internal. Well, mine's external. Well, then we're not doing the same thing. And that's why I always say, what's non-anxious you doing right now? You know, taking things around you. That's good as well. Like living, living in the now does help with it as well. There's a difference between pushing away feelings of grief and anxiety and just allowing yourself to live in the now. And if the grief comes up, don't push it away. Just let it be there and then continue doing what you're doing. So much of this, I always you know, you hear this kind of thing and love getting all the advice and I for the next couple of weeks I seem to be able to do it but then what about as it time goes by how do we make our behavior sustainable because it's probably one of the biggest challenges that I think people with anxiety face do you yeah know I mean? definitely it's a, it's, it's, it's a practice yeah it's habitual a lot most of excessive anxiety is a habit you know I'm not saying that to be accusatory or blame people I know I've been diagnosed with panic disorder, health anxiety, OCD, loads, loads of them. And a lot of it is habitual. And yeah, you're right. You can slip into old habits. You know you're in a bad habit when you wake up and think, how do I feel today? Well, that's a habit. Why would you do that? Non-anxious you wouldn't be thinking that. Non-anxious you would be thinking, what am I having for breakfast? You know, uh, avoidance, these kind of 
macro false comforts like oh i'll do this but as long as this safety behavior is there or i'll do this but just but i'll have the safety behavior just in case or i can only do this because i've got my safe person with me or i'll ruminate because it gives me the illusion that i have control over this worry mm-hmm. and it's like no you don't need to do any of that that's a habit so yeah you you can feel that now but you're, you're right in two three weeks time this because it's practice and and as uh, and as drew says of uh, drew and salatu he's a just teaching about anxiety and stuff. You get out what you put in. Like you got to do the work. And I know it sounds bad. Like we, when we're when we're struggling, and I know particularly struggling with grief, you just want someone to come and take away all your pain. And it's nice when someone comes to take away your pain, and people can help. But also, it's, it's got to require us to put in the work as well to snap out of habits. Particularly with when that jug is full and you snap and you go into excessive anxiety. Obviously, there's a difference between ruminating and stuff and then having a grief day. I have grief days all the time. I think that's fine. It's healthy. Sit there, reflect, be, you know, think of loved ones, just process any emotion that comes up. But then if the next day I'm falling back into anxious habits, then that's my responsibility and I've got to get on with it. You know, I've I've got to really do it. Yeah. It takes a lot of practice. Would you say it, it wasn't something that came easy to you and it took a long time to get like it as a habit like that? Yeah. I had a habit so bad I couldn't leave my bedroom for a whole year. I used to get wow. anxious even just leaving the bedroom to go use the toilet. I know how ingrained the habit can be. Um, but with repetition, as we know, because our brain's full of neuropathways, if we strengthen a new neuropathway, then that becomes a new habit. That's how it's formed. You know, I often use the analogy of the tall grass. When you know you walk across some tall grass, you flatten it down with your feet. You know you've made a temporary path, and then you go back a week later and it's grown back. If you walk across that grass every day, twice a day, or along the same path doing the same thing, you start to make a permanent path, um, and that's how your brain works, neuropathways. Whereas at the moment, you're, you know, some of some of you, your strongest path might be to ruminate. Oh, I've got five minutes to myself. I'll ruminate then. Well, that's a habit, you know. As like to, oh, I've just woke up. Yeah, I've just woke up. How do I feel? Well, that's a habit. But through commitment and repetition and stuff like that, and and obviously compassion, you've got to be on your side when you're doing this. You've got to be friendly to yourself. You can't just be like military sergeant your way out of it. But, um, yeah, you start to develop new habits, and that's what I did. I started to change the habits in the morning. Instead of ruminating, not leaving my room, I was like, no, each morning I will leave my room and simulate having breakfast even though I don't want to, you know, mm-hmm. and then started to develop new habits. And, um, yeah, and, but obviously once you're out of the habitual cycle, you, your brain's a bit more flexible and you can do different things. But if you're in a sticky, rigid spot, it, it requires kind of a rigid – Um, program to get out of it you have to learn how to train your brain one of the things I found particularly helpful for me is so I you know what English drinking culture is like for so many years I used to do probably quite a lot of binge drinking just like going out partying just having way too much to be honest which would then always create anxiety I have found now that since lockdown and not drinking I've now created a new habit for myself that when I go out, I literally just have two drinks and I've not had a hangover since. My 
rumination and overthinking has significantly reduced is what is the link between alcohol and like overthinking there must be something there um hangovers trigger the sympathetic nervous system which simulate the symptoms of anxiety a bit like Mm -hmm. caffeine triggers the sympathetic nervous system and makes people feel anxious it's not actually the hangover that makes you feel anxious it's your interpretation of it and the habit that you that occurs when you're hungover so if you're really anxious and then you're hung and you're hungover and you've noticed each time i'm hungover and i'm getting anxious actually a lot of that's habit because there's people in your life that can get really hungover drink 10 times as much as you uh, I'm not saying do this, uh, you know, <laughs> I, I wake up and be fine. Like, yeah, I'm hungover, just like you, but I haven't got the anxiety with it. A lot of people, when they say they get really bad anxiety when they're hungover, is because they have a fear of fear and that their nervous system, their fear response is sensitized because because of that. In my practice, when I work with that, I always, I'm very passionate about doing what non-anxious you would be doing. That's recovery. If you can do what non-anxious you is doing or before your you know, panic attack or whatever. And then that's what we aim for, which is quite unconventional because people are like, oh, I've cut out this, I've cut out gluten, I've cut out alcohol, I've cut out weed, I've cut out all these things. I'm like, what do you want? And we'll work towards that. And they'll actually, I would, you know, some people like you in a, in a good way, like, <laughs> you know, actually I've drank less and that's probably going to benefit you in many ways. Yeah. Some people yeah. are like, no, I just want to be like the old me. I want, I want to be like the old me and I want to be able to do all that. Now, obviously, I don't condone drinking loads of alcohol. You don't want to do it. But like, at the same time, I respect the wishes of my clients. And they're like, no, I just want to be able to go out and drink loads of ale again. I was like, well, then that's what we practice exposure with. Obviously, I'm not going out drinking loads of ale with my clients. That'd be unethical. But, but, but what I'm saying is, you know, if that's your homework, and then we practice with that uncertainty when we're hungover, you know, and that's how you rewire your brain. Because you're right, and I know I've been I've been this person just ruminating when you're hungover. It's so easy because you because you're tired and you don't want to do anything, and you're temporarily depressed because of all the alcohol that you've had. It's like, oh, yeah, it's a it's a difficult one. It's not a fun experience, is it? And <laughs> no, you live in not. Manchester, right? Don't you? And that's obviously there's a lot of pubs and a lot of places to go out there. You must find it hard sometimes. <laughs> Yeah, well, I like, I like going out for a beer. <clears throat> um, you know, I often people often see me, me doing that and stuff. And there's a time in life where I didn't. But at the same time, yeah, you got to. I remember with grief, in particular, I was probably drinking too much. There was nothing to do with anxiety. But then I had to kind of, you know, I went to personal therapy, and I was saying, you know, like I think I'm I think I'm drinking a bit too much to deal with this grief. And I'm like, well, maybe try and face the grief. And I was like, yeah. Facing a grief is such a difficult thing to do, though. And, you know, I left it so long. But now that I've tried to tell myself a kind of story about what happened and and face the issues and things that I never addressed really does make a difference. So I appreciate you also being open about that, because I know my listeners will really benefit from hearing you say those things and knowing that, you know, we're not alone. It's also something that I wanted to ask you about was when we are in these continuously sad cycles you know like say even if it is from a hangover or just generally ruminating when we can't get out of it what is the best way in that moment and I know we have to learn how to retrain our brain but when we're in those dark sad times and things keep going around in our head what is a good way to kind of help yourself snap out of it giving yourself permission to particularly with grief <clears throat> grief comes with 
feelings of like guilt and anger and the need to fix or come to kind of some kind of conclusion. And therefore it's those kind of feelings that help fix, help us fixate on it. Mm. Um, I know that personally that happened with me, with my grief as well. And it's a bit like giving yourself permission that it's okay to not look at it. Actually be clever with yourself and be like, me leaving this alone is not me being a bad person or anything like that, but also acknowledging metacognitively. So that's observing your thoughts, going, I've observed now that I am ruminating and nothing ever good comes from this. Now, if you're very self-critical of yourself, you might find that difficult to, because it's a very compassionate way to speak to yourself and you might find it difficult. Um, but what you need to do is, sorry, someone came in offering sandwiches. Uh, did not. <laughs> And what you need to do is you need to realize, actually, I need to observe myself. I need to be like, okay, I've observed now for an hour. I've just been stewing on this. And no one's benefiting. Okay, if I'm not going to be nice to myself, then who else is benefiting? No one. My partner's not benefiting. My family's not benefiting. Well, I'll do it for them instead then. Because snapping out of it or pulling, pulling yourself out of it is literally being compassionate to yourself and saying, and others and saying, I don't need to do this anymore. I'm going to now commit my attention to something external and live my life. Because when you sat there in those dark places, you're not living your life. You know, there's a difference between sitting there and feeling emotional. If I want to go and grieve, I'll go and speak to my brother or go to his grave or whatever, and I'll speak to him. That's still me living my life and me grieving. But me sat at home in the corner, just stewing, ruminating no one's benefiting no that they're, they're things that we've got to kind of compassionately invite ourselves to come out of there are mm -hmm. other better ways to grieve and better uses of your time do you mind me asking when it was that you lost your brother my grief started before he died so my brother was 14 and he was diagnosed with a very rare form of liver cancer and was given a terminal diagnosis so I moved back home with my mum to look after him. He was given not long to live, but he lived for about a year and a half. Bless him. Very traumatic, turbulent journey with treatment, um, all sorts of stuff that I couldn't even fit now and probably <laughs> bleak everyone out. But like uh, my grief started then, and I think people who've lost people to do chronic terminal illnesses i think your grief starts before then also intermixed with hope and maybe is the miracle will happen and things like that forced me to live day by day to take each thing at a time yeah that was heartbreaking that must have been really difficult to deal with and especially knowing that he had terminal cancer so i'm really sorry that you lost him because that must have been so difficult I have a lot of people on my instagram page that do follow me who have asked me to talk about anticipatory grief and I think, I know this was a, quite a bit of time ago for you, but how can they try and live by each day? It's such a difficult thing to have to do. Absolutely. Um, again, compassion is really important. And the first thing I'd say is you are grieving right now. So mm. do not expect to be 100% when you are grieving. Grief is a very strong, palpable feeling that takes a lot of energy and your emotional resources so stop trying to be a hundred percent 
Superman each day for for your relative or your loved one who's not 100% because you are grieving. That is a legitimate feeling uh, and just try your best. Um, I try my best and luckily I'm not crippled by too much guilt for that being the older brother of, of, of my brother. I knew I tried my best and I mean, it led to a mental breakdown. So I know I was trying my best, uh, <laughs> but I didn't put myself first. And so when I had a mental breakdown, when he was ill, no one, no one benefited then, you know, me beating myself up, constantly saying, I need to do this. I need to help. I need to do this. I need to help. Didn't help anything at all. You, it's okay to feel what you're feeling. It's okay to feel that grief. It is strong. It is horrible. Um, and it, and it's conflated with hope as well. Um, what I will say though, is okay to put your, please put yourself first now and then it's okay to go out and have a drink with friends or go for a hike on your own or do things, something for you. Because otherwise you end up like me, who didn't do that because I thought I was being selfish in some way. And lo and behold, I, the irony is, is I was being selfish, not putting myself first, putting my own guilt first, as opposed to being smart and being like, no, I need to look after myself, otherwise no one will benefit. Yeah. Guilt is such a common feeling, isn't it, when it comes with grief, because people can't help but blame themselves or feel like they didn't do enough. And it's all about being kind to ourselves. And I, I can't imagine how you must have felt at that time in your life and my listeners will find so much comfort in your story and, and what you said and showing that, you know, you can find ways to find happiness again and find ways to be more at peace with your grief. Are there ways that you now talk to your brother or like, you know, kind of treasure him now that he's not here, but like things that help you connect to him? Yeah, I do in a way. I don't talk to him as such. Sometimes I do if I go to his grave and it feels like, I don't feel like I'm talking to him as such. It's more like me having a safe space to, to, to just out my feelings. Um, everyone's different with this. My mum's very kind of spiritual. She does, she, you know, she believes that he visits her and stuff like that. And, you know, that's yeah. each to their own. And that helps her process it. And I think that's excellent. And it really has helped to process it. She's doing better than me. I share all my wins with, with him when something good happens I think of him immediately and I think that's nice and it works really nice yeah yeah so I also see him in the see him in the faces of people I help as well just in, mm. like when they're happy when they're relieved when they're, something good came from all that because if it wasn't for that I wouldn't have developed an anxiety disorder that made me train to be a therapist and write all these books and do all these things and then yeah that wouldn't have that wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for that and so when I see like someone's face light up because they've finished therapy and they're doing well then yeah I kind of see them in the crevices of people's smiling faces now and then but that's you know maybe that's me romanticizing it I don't know <laughs> it's a nice way to feel though isn't it because I really struggled to connect with my mum and because she actually had a mental health illness delusional delusional disorder so we didn't see her for the last two years of her life so I've really struggled over the last few years to feel like we had a connection and we had a relationship. So now over the last one or two years, I've tried to do things or think of things that remind me of her. And it is hard. There's a lot of people out there that really do struggle. And I think some of those things that you said are quite nice and the things that 
because we don't ever forget them. And sometimes finding ways to bring them back into our day can be a really nice touch. Absolutely. I think that's lovely. I'd like to also suggest as well to people where bringing them into, in your case, that I mean, I appreciate you sharing that. It's a kind of an active commitment to kind of be with them and grieve with them and that. And I think that's really healthy and lovely. On the opposite way, I'd also say it's very important that if you've had two, three days or you feel good and you realize that in those two, three days, you've not thought of that loved one, don't feel guilty. That's the last thing you can do. It means you're just getting on with your life. You'll never forget them, don't worry. It doesn't mean you'd care less about them or the memory of them is dissipating. No, it just means you are going like the grief always stays the same, but you have, you know, it's the old expanding fried egg analogy, isn't it? Like you, <laughs> you first crack, you first crack an egg into the pan and the yolk is big and the white and the egg white is small, but then just grief's like ever expanding egg white where the yolk always stays the same because that's the size of the grief, but your life expands. And that's okay too. I like that analogy. So, yeah. Yeah. I think I'm the same. Like I, I am comfortable feeling happy. I think a few years back, I felt really guilty and I felt angry, to be honest. I had a lot of bottled up anger. I think it's because I didn't know how to grieve my mum, especially with that disconnected relationship that we had. And that is also really common too. I think people do sometimes struggle if they've had a estranged relationship particularly with complex grief, which is the grief of losing someone who you love, but it's also the relationship wasn't cut and dry. It was quite complicated. Mm. So then you end up, complex grief is kind of grieving what you've lost, but also grieving what was never there uh, or the chance of that never being there ever happening again. And that's, that's a weird type of multi-layered grief. Well, I never kind of know if we could have had that yeah. extra you know extra special connection or whatever however you want to throw at it because that chance is gone and we grieve that too you know it's not it's not the same but like you know a year or two after my brother died, died my father died and we'd only just started forming a relationship really so mm-hmm. when he died it was like oh i'm grieving this really now cool relationship with my father who was a massive gambling addict and drug addict and and then it was the kind of like, I won't say drug. Yeah, you know, he did have a problem with drugs. Um, but then, yeah, it was a kind of complex grief. It's like, okay, well, I'm grieving that what we had and it was developing. But a lot of the grief that I found in therapy was actually I'm grieving what didn't happen. Yeah. And, and that can be quite complex. And that sounds like what you're doing as well. It's like, actually, I need to not only piece together what I didn't have with my mom who had her own mental health issues, but also kind of what what wasn't there what i will say though is that a part of it is realizing and i'm I'm sure you've kind of gone through this is that it's not personal i realized it was you know you're coming of age when you you know you look at where your parents failed you a bit but then when you realize that failure doesn't come from a personal place it's it's actually that they're incredibly flawed or or have got an illness themselves you know, yeah. my dad had an illness, gambling addiction is now, you know, is an, is an, it's an illness, yeah. you know, and um, having that compassion, I think is very good for processing grief. Yeah, it, it's really interesting because I don't know if you've come across Dr. Chloe, who is a grief and trauma specialist. I did an episode with her 
at the very beginning of starting this podcast and one thing that she taught me about was like what narrative was I telling myself and be kinder with the story that I'm creating around what's happened and maybe you had to go through that too and it was like okay my mum actually had a mental illness my mum it wasn't that she didn't love me it was okay I need to look at this from a new lens now and, and think about it differently absolutely and and seeing it from a from a lens of what that was actually happening you know um similar to you know use the example of my dad like growing up he'd often choose gambling over me but now i know and there was an excellent documentary in the uk paul merson on gambling he's you know a famous ex-footballer now famous pundit and he just he not only did he talk about his gambling addiction, but he did the science behind it as well. And they put him in a MRI brain scans and, and exposed him to like betting adverts and his whole brain lit up and synapses in his brain lit up. Then they showed him a picture of his own kid and his brain didn't light up at all. He says, I have to live a life where I'm more excited by gambling adverts than I am of my own kid. And I sat there going, that's really interesting. Like he's not, he obviously cares more about his kid because he's in tears, but his brain's more stimulated because of the illness. And it makes it feel less, it's less about you then, which is freeing. It's not like, oh, I'm a piece of shit. That's why my parents didn't love me. It was actually, they were, you know, in our cases, ill and, and, and flawed. It's the brain, like the brain can do some weird and wonderful things and we have to tell ourselves that it's not always something that we can control. How do we know at what point our anxieties or any of like our mental health issues are something that we need to go to the doctor about? Yeah, well, you always go to the doctor when any when you can't function like you usually can. So if you've got excessive anxiety that's preventing you from doing things or depression, where it's preventing you from doing things and you're realizing actually everything's difficult, can't get out of bed, getting lots of these what's the point thoughts um, or what if thoughts if it's anxiety. Always go to your doctor's first point of call. Don't assume that your doctor knows everything because especially here, the knowledge of anxiety disorders by GPs here is, is, is terrible. Not blaming GPs, I just think the system's rubbish because I think you should have doctors for... GPs and doctors for physical stuff. And then you should have like mental health doctors like psychiatrists and psychologists to help you with mental health stuff. To expect a GP or your doctor to know everything about not only the world of mental health, but physical health is outrageous. So yeah, you've got to realize that actually doctors have got to know a little about a lot. I know in my case, I had to kind of do my own kind of stuff and find out for myself. Thankfully, there's podcasts like this and loads of information out there now. But back when I was ill, there wasn't that much. And, and medication, again, is something that you it, that you and your doctor have a chat about. Um, I'm passionate about medication for like panic disorder. I just don't, uh, in my practice, I never kind of advocate for it. But medication for depression, obviously, you, yes. I mean, if you depression, you've got genuinely an imbalance in your brain. And if you and your doctor are discussing that, then listen to your doctor because they can help with an imbalance in your brain. That said, not all medications great for each person. So, you know, feel free to say to your doctor, actually, this one isn't really working for me. Let's try another one or whatever. You know, so never forget your agency and stuff. Don't just pretend or assume that people know what's best for you. You've got to take an active input in that too.
Yeah. I've seen that you have started a recent like online course as well. So that sounds like something that could really help my listeners because it's actually tailored by you. And is it like video content? Could you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. It's called Stop Fearing Fear with Anxiety, Josh. So if you fear fear and misinterpret fear and you're afraid to do things, yeah, it's, um, it's all video content. It's all filmed in in my office here and there's a, there's a booklet and there's each module. It's broken down. You do a little, one module at a time and, yeah, it's nice. Like There's lovely illustrations in there and, yeah, it, it starts you from the very beginning so it doesn't ask you to do anything crazy. And then um, when you enroll, you join, you know, there's a, there's a little class group that you join and, and share your, we discuss all the modules and people share their wins and their successes in there, which is really cool. I mean, someone's even surpassed me in there. I'm like, <laughs> someone flew from like Australia to America. I was like, I'm well, well too terrified to do that myself. So fair play. <laughs> yeah. I love that you're doing like community classrooms because I genuinely believe that there is so much power in community. Getting to know that there's other people in that room or whether it's a video conference, that they also are going through your course, that they are getting wins. It actually really helps. It makes such a big difference. Yeah, definitely. When it's done right, if you want to be part of an online community, make sure it's moderated and run by someone trained Trained. in ethics and stuff. Because there's lots of anxiety groups online that are just echo chambers of empty reassurance that kind of keep you compulsing you know, and, and, and they're not good, but if you do the right, if you find like the right one for anxiety, particularly anxiety disorders, then yeah, they can be, it can be helpful. Yeah. And I'm conscious of time because I know we've been talking for a while now, but I'd really love you to talk a bit about your book as well. I actually downloaded it when it first came out, Untangle Your Anxiety. Oh, um, did yeah, I downloaded it. My auntie in New Zealand now listens to you and she downloaded it. <laughs> You're going global. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, well, my latest book, Untangle Your Anxiety, uh, that's good. Yeah, that's for people with you know excessive anxiety to the point where it's really affecting our lives and we're avoiding and we're having panic attacks and we're we're, we're not sure what's happening and, and our lives are becoming more restricted. Um, that's out. And also, if you don't mind me dropping in 10 days time from today, so it could be even be out by the time this drops, uh, I've got on the second in the Untangle series called Untangle Your Intrusive Thoughts, which is for mm. people that struggle with taboo-ridden, horrible, intrusive thoughts, usually people who have OCD, I'm really looking forward to releasing that. Not many people talk about it. I used to think OCD was, you know, switching off the light 10 times or going to check my hair straighteners switched off 10 times. But it's not, is it? It can also be obsessive thoughts and things um, that just creep into your mind it's and can be intrusive. That, yeah. 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 So people think that OCD is often mischaracterized as, you know, excessive physical repetitive behaviors, which it can be. But the main... The number one compulsion in OCD is rumination. Mm. So, you know, I'm having a horrible thought. Now I'll ruminate about it just to make sure it's not true. That's most of OCD. You know, yeah. okay, some people might have a horrible thought. What if I poison my baby? And then they wash their hands 10 times, you know. Um, but, yeah, it always comes down to an intrusive thought first. And it's our relationship with intrusive thoughts or intrusive sensations. But yeah, you can find out all that about that in a Untangle Your Intrusive Thoughts if you struggle with it or know someone who does. Yeah, no, I'll definitely share about that for you as well because I know there's a lot of my followers that, that do have that. So that'd be really helpful for them. 
Um, is there any kind of last thoughts or words you'd like to share? I know we've covered quite a lot of different things, but anything else you'd like to leave my listeners with? No, thank you for being brave. Um, also, listening to a pod, even just even listening to a podcast about grief as a theme is brave. I think it's good. It's compassionate. I presume people listening probably lost someone themselves. And what I'll say is that you deserve to be compassionate to yourself by doing things like this. And even if you've lost them, whether it's blatant, direct grief, you know, where your relationship was perfect and brilliant, or whether it was an imperfect relationship with lots of question marks hanging over it, because you always deserve to give yourself a pat on the back. You're okay. Nothing to feel guilty for. You might have even done something that you may perhaps feel guilty for. You don't. It's your intentions that matter. And make sure for the rest of your day or your evening that, you know, you bear that in mind. You're allowed to put yourself first. And I mean that sincerely and wholeheartedly. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. I've learned so much interesting and helpful things, particularly the coping mechanism piece. That is something I'm going to change. We don't do coping mechanisms. No, no, no. We don't do any of them. (laughs) Well, thank you so much. It's been great to chat.